Good morning, and welcome to episode 646 of Effectively Wild, a daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Howdy. We have come to the end of our 30-team odyssey of preview podcasts. We have arrived at the Dodgers, who have the best Pakoda projected record, and Later in this show, Sahadab Sharma will be speaking to Eric Steven, who covers the Dodgers for True Blue LA, but we have the pleasure of talking to the BP Annual Essay author, as always. In this case, that is Molly Knight, who is a longtime writer for ESPN, before leaving to work on a book about the Dodgers, the best team money can buy, the strange saga of the Los Angeles Dodgers, which is coming out in mid-July. Hello, Molly. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So a lot of things have happened with the Dodgers since you started this book. How many times have you wanted to write a new chapter or actually written a new chapter since you finished what you thought the book was going to be? Oh, my gosh. Well, originally, the book was just supposed to be about the 2013 season. And then it sort of spiraled into 2013, 2014. And then, you know, once Ned Coletti was let go and um or, or i guess kicked upstairs whatever they want to call it um then uh the matt count trade thing happened and it just it just kept getting longer and longer and my hair was falling out i think um but yes now it's hopefully finished <laughs> at this point and a lot of your bp essay was kind of about what freeman would be like with the dodgers you you mentioned that the skills required are different when you have money what do you see as the skills that are required that that are different or or that you know serve a general manager better or worse with a team like the Dodgers as opposed to a team like Tampa Bay and and how has he handled the transition so far? Right. Well, I think um the Dodgers last year they they lost because their bullpen was terrible and they they were a, good, a really good team, a good rotation, a good lineup, coaching staff gelled, every everybody I, people thought they were going to go much farther than they did, but you know they lost every game in the seventh inning or, or later, and that was because Coletti filled the bullpen with uh, former closers who cost a lot of money and that they couldn't cut when they weren't doing well. And I think that, as you guys know, as everybody listening to this knows, bullpens are so fickle from year to year. It's just a real mistake to overpay someone for past performance, especially if they're on the downswing of their career. And I just think that teams, in a way, teams like Tampa Bay, smaller market teams who don't have the money to give, uh, a, you know, Brian Wilson $10 million a year salary or a Chris Perez or a Brandon League, you know, multi-million dollar contracts, they're actually at, a, at an advantage in some level. They can pick up guys off the scrap heap, pay them minimally, and if they're not doing well, they can either option them or cut them or whatever we have you and just hurt the team. So I think sometimes um, big money can actually actually hurt you in those situations. And I think Freeman's been smart so far. I think a lot of the things that they've done to strengthen the the bullpen and the rotation are things I really like. You know, guys who who um, guys like Brad Anderson, Brandon McCarthy, obviously for their rotation. But then I like the Juan Nicasio signing and and just little things where you know these are guys around the fringes that you can. You could have, and then you know, if if they get hurt, they kill your team, like like um, the signings from from last year did. What is Ned Coletti's legacy going to be as a Dodgers GM? Because he really was there for I think uh, ten or eleven seasons, the longest that anyone had been there since 
Fred Clare as the GM. Uh, and he had some good right. years, and he went through some really crazy problems with the ownership, obviously. Uh, will right. he be remembered as, like, uh, I don't know, why, I won't even put words in your mouth. What will he be remembered? What will his tenure be remembered as? You know, I think given the the constraints that he worked under, and I've, and I've been critical of him, uh, I know, but I think that given the, the constraints that he worked under, under McCourt, I, I think he did as well as, as anybody could have. I mean, I know the Dodgers could have and probably should have won the World Series in 2008 or 2009 when they had, because they had that core of, the, the core of young players all coming up who were super cheap. They had you know, Matt Kemp and Andre Ethier and James Loney and Russell Martin, Chad Billingsley, all these guys, John, John Broxton. So, so those guys are so cheap that they could have got gone out and paid for complimentary pieces to really push them over the top. And Coletti had deals in place uh, for both Sebast- C.T. Sebastia and Cliff Lee, and, and McCourt said no uh, because he, he didn't want to add any more any more of the payroll. And I just I think um, that they could have won you know a World Series, and and that would be his legacy at that point. Obviously, would be would be great. I think you know he's a guy who's one of the last sort of bastions. These these, these guys who are still clinging to uh, you know, feel over over numbers. Uh, you know, he doesn't. The Dodgers have one of the smaller analytics departments in baseball. When this new ownership group took over, I think they had one a one person department. Uh, I, I think that that um, yeah, he. I think he did a decent job, but I think the game is changing, and and they they need these these people who are willing to evolve and and look at all sorts of different ways to think about evaluating players and evaluating how to put a team together and. We're sort of getting with the times now. Um, the Dodgers are so. Yeah, I think he'll be remembered. I think it'll be it'll, his legacy is okay. You know, it's certainly, the court certainly didn't help him, but I think you know he'll sort of be be respected in that way. So there's now uh, he's still around as a senior advisor to the president. I don't know how big his role is, but besides him, uh, as far as I can tell, there are five former GMs or current GMs in the front yeah. office. If you're willing yeah. to count Stan Caston. Uh, who was a GM right. in another sport and, of course, president elsewhere. Uh, so yeah. what what does this do for, like, the kind of decision-making process? And uh, does it create any sort of weird power dynamic? Or is it just, like, lots of great brains all working together so far? Well, so far, it seems like lots of great brains all working together. I think, you know, Andrew Friedman was able to handpick you know, who, who he wanted with him. And obviously, he picked people that he felt like he could work with and they seem to all be great friends he and josh burns and farhan and um and i know he had a relationship with uh, hunsaker from back in in tampa so far they all seem to be getting along it's funny i, I somebody told me that and i was kind of laughing like well yeah give it give it some time and they'll, they'll all be at each other's throats at some point you know over something that didn't work out but i don't know everybody who has who has seen them interact uh, you know, says they just they really feel like they like each other. There's a respect there. There's a there's a trust there. You know, because like a lot of times you'll have a a guy like like in in Friedman's position who will hire people under him, but he still sort of is nervous about letting them you know make their own decisions. And from what I've seen and from what I've heard, Friedman's not like that at all. There's a there's a great trust level, which I think is the most important thing in an organization. The Dodgers didn't have that uh, last year. It got to the point where. Their their front office, their GM, and their player development side and their drafting side, they were all constantly, you know, pointing fingers at each other about decisions. And there's a lot of sabotage and distrust. And, well, I don't want to promote that guy because so-and-so found him. You know, just a lot of petty stuff that doesn't need to happen. You see in offices over time when 
when um, relationships erode. So they're in a much better place now that the organization is with these guys in charge. Do you, do you have any idea who is like who calls the agent or who calls another team to discuss to to sort of start a discussion about a trade? Is it still Farhan because he's the GM? And I guess like a right. sub question is: Do you have any idea what Josh Burns does? I think they all. I, honestly, I think Farhan. Farhan is the GM. Um, I, I'm sure. I know that they all sit there together on, on decisions at the winter meetings. You know, the three of them were all working very closely together, and that's. I think that's that's why we saw that that crazy like four team or however many teams you know trade that went down that involved all these moving pieces. You know, I think it was because. One of them was working on one aspect, another one was working on, you know, one was working with the Marlins, and one was working with the Phillies, and one was working with the Angels, and they 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 were able to do the work of, you know, four people instead of just one. Um, but from I, Friedman, the buck stops with him. But like I said, I think they they come to him with ideas, and you know, if he likes it, then he says sure. Um, I know that Burns, uh, obviously, he uh, loved uh, Grandal. He traded for him in. In San Diego, so that to me felt like it had his um, his imprint on it. So I feel like he's going to be very invested in, in making that work because he's obviously a, a firm believer in him to trade for him twice. But I think that's sort of the advantage of having of having those three guys who have all worked in different organizations. Is they all have specific relationships with players. I mean, Farhan knew McCarthy, obviously, and you know you just have those different those different things that go on. And I think it it, it really served it served them well so far. We'll see. If they ever are at odds over over some things, but so far it's been it's been great. That was my theory about that crazy day on the trade deadline. Also, when they seemed to be working on five moves simultaneously, that that it had yeah. to be a product of their five-headed front office. I I asked Kasten about that a couple of weeks ago, and he said that twenty-nine other front offices could have done the same thing that they did. That he doesn't I, think it gave them any advantage, but I. It's hard to believe. I don't think so. No, I, and I think, and and they should be proud of that. They shouldn't feel like, I mean, they should say, yeah, we we take it, we hired these guys, and 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 we have we have the, all these ex GMs in here because we want to be able to pull stuff off like that. I mean, it was so, it was really impressive. We were all like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> I heard there was a, a, I was like, I was hearing the Dodgers were getting a second baseman. Um, and I, and I heard Philadelphia was involved. I'm thinking they're getting Utley and this doesn't make any sense. And then they, they traded D. Gordon. And it's like, it was like we were all trying to put together what was happening. We were all hearing different things. And then we, when we saw what it was, it was just like, dear God. I mean, how do you even come up with that? Like, how, mm-hmm. how, there's no way one brain comes up with that. Right. I think it was just, they all, they were each working on something. And then they, they all kind of made it work together. And it, and it was awesome. Of course, maybe they do believe it gives them an advantage, and that's why they are downplaying the advantage of it. So maybe that's the well, explanation. But um, I mean, maybe teams would be wise to spend more money on their front offices than on, mm-hmm. you know, middle relief. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it's something to think about. Something Louis Paulus has written a bunch about for Baseball Prospectus that 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 yeah. is the place where teams should be spending. So your book is largely, uh, a a large chunk of it is about the origin story of this juggernaut that we see today. So do you have any, any favorite Frank McCourt stories that you uncovered while working on this book? Well, I always enjoyed, I mean, there were so many things. And my favorite story was that, that Russian physicist they hired in in (laughs) Boston, Vladimir Spunt, to, his job was to sit and, and, you know, think blue and send positive uh you know manipulate things through the air and the idea that like he was weighing in on 
players and st- like staff. Like he he didn't like the energy of of uh, Tim Tracy or or Paul De Podesta or whatever. Like the idea that he would even he would even get a get, write an email about that. Like that's just just crazy to me. I love that story. I love that they had hairstylists coming to their house every day. You know, hundred fifty thousand dollars a year spent on that when um, they were you know unable to pay their players. I mean, it was just great. The whole thing was was just exactly you know the problem with with um the microcosm of what was going on in America at that time, and they came crashing down when when the economy did. So it was it was um it's really interesting to see that up close. So is there anything that the Dodgers don't have right now? I, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. It seems like if you were trying to imagine the the ideal franchise that had everything, the Dodgers have all of the things that you would want, whether it's a, a top-rated farm system and an enormous TV deal and a smart front office and, and a good current team, and it, the list goes on and on. Is there yeah. anywhere where they are still weak? Do they have a vulnerability? Well, I need to... They need to get their their products on television. Um, yes. That's that's really frustrating. Yeah, they've done a good job um, keeping keeping prices down too. Ticket prices. They've been raising. Uh, they've sort of been taxing the rich. They've been raising the, the expensive seats, but you can still get season tickets to the Dodgers for like eight dollars a game, which is which is crazy considering that yesterday. I mean, they, they've capped the number of season tickets to thirty five thousand. Yesterday they 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 announced they went over three million tickets sold already for the season. So. It's it's crazy to me that, that um, it's great that they haven't uh, priced out the cheap seats yet. Mm-hmm. Um, they need, I mean, as far as the, as far as the organization goes, the owners are great, the front office is great. They've got the best pitcher in the world. They've got the most um, polarizing, talked about player in in Puig. They they're starting to their their starting pitching is a bit concerning if um if Rue is injured. Uh, but then again, they they've got four starters who are were pretty pretty darn good um and i don't know of any team that shows up to spring training with like you know seven decent above average starters so their bullpen is a huge huge question mark again but i just i feel like those guys are going to be really creative in, in who they bring in and i think they're going to just i don't know i don't think another thing about the coletti regime was i got the sense just in talking to coaches and, and players is that that regime was a bit afraid of youth um you know like you know, a bit afraid to promote to promote Jock Peterson or do these different things, these these young pitchers, um, because they, I guess it was just sort of you know they they so they valued experience and you know they didn't want to put these kids and these you know under the bright lights of the playoffs. They thought they would they wouldn't be able to handle it. And I just don't see that from this this group. I think it's it'll be a meritocracy, um, and I, I don't see them having these um, overpaid veterans blocking kids who are better just because of some perceived advantage that experience gives. So we'll see. We'll see what they do with Andre Easter. That, that that has a chance to be a daily headache again, having four uh four outfielders for three spots. But I don't know, I guess Carl Crawford could hurt himself tying his shoes tomorrow and then <laughs> and then Ethereum will be back in the starting lineup. Does, Other than that, I think they're good. Yeah, five if you count Heisey, who, you know, you might as well count because they signed him. Uh for some reason yeah. you would think. Uh yeah. Does it surprise you? I mean, you mentioned that starting pitching has good starting pitchers. That's very good. They also have, you know, guys who are um, obviously have recent and relevant injury histories. And sure. it seems to me not a lot of depth. And I mean, if they were any other team, I'd go, oh, yeah, that's a great rotation. Good job, guys. You put together right. a good rotation. Right. But the Dodgers have 700 regular players for like eight spots. And then they only have, 
it seems to me, I know. a fairly shallow starting rotation that depends on injured, uh, you know, recently injured guys. And right. the the depth behind those guys are also recently injured guys. Does it surprise you that right. there isn't like a, you know, a sort of a safety school level of depth behind these guys? Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is just their farm system is just, a disaster for for a while, and they just they haven't really. Jock Peterson will be the first, besides Puig, who I don't really count because he was an international guy that they signed. Um, Jock Peterson will be the first player to call to call up and play every day if, if he's good, you know, to be and, and to stick since like Matt Kemp, basically. I mean, they haven't called up a pitcher who has stuck since Clayton Kershaw. So, I mean, this is a farm system that's been a, a global failure, really, in producing major league quality. They, they've they've been able to sometimes parlay those prospects for, or you know, trade them for for rentals or what have you, you know. And but it is a, it is a problem. At some point, Zach Lee is going to have to show if he can if he can pitch or not. I think they they think Orioles will be ready next year. I you know, Brett Anderson, for for my money, is terrific when he's healthy, and I, I I prefer a player like that than a player who's you know mediocre all the time. Um, and I don't know. I guess I guess we'll see what happens. It is a little bit a little bit uh, surprising, but I don't know. I just don't know really know what's out there on the trade market. I think they they were interested in Cole Hamels, but the Phillies the asking price is just crazy. They're not going to trade to uh, Seager, Peterson, and Urias. It's not going to happen. So. I mean, we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens as as the trade deadline here. If they if they need a pitcher, they might have the, to trade, you know, somebody. The injury prone pitchers thing is one of my favorite storylines of this season. I think because they've clearly gone after these guys intentionally. They've they've mm-hmm. said as much that they seem to think right. that they have an advantage that they can either identify guys who aren't as risky as other teams think they are, or or they can keep them from from being that risky. So. Do you right. do you buy that? I mean, we've had Stan Conti on this podcast, and clearly he's right. a guy who's been studying all this stuff forever and and uh-huh. running studies himself. And if anyone knows the secret, maybe maybe it's them. But they've really put a lot of their eggs into that basket by just constructing sure. half of a staff based on these guys. So if it backfires, it could really backfire. But if oh, it yeah. doesn't, if they have the advantage, if the Dodgers have all the money and know something about pitcher injuries, then I mean, right. forget it. Right. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the Brandon McCarthy, I think that that's real, that the changes that he made, uh, to just in the pitches he was throwing, obviously when he went to the Yankees and they said, you know, this is not, you're not using the right mix of pitches. We want you to do it this way. And his numbers were much, much better. And I, you know, and just in talking to him, you know, he, he's talked about getting stronger and the work he's done uh, in the off season with the trainer to build muscle to help to help strengthen his body and I, I i believe in that i think that he's uh you know obviously if a pitcher gets hurt any pitcher could get hurt tomorrow but um but i believe i believe that he is uh more durable and better than he was with with uh arizona um before at Brett anderson i i mean i hope that he can pull it together i, I love watching him pitch I'd love to see him have a have a healthy season, but he is a huge risk. Obviously, they know that. I think that they they hope that Beachy uh, Brandon Beachy can can do something for them. Obviously, he's coming off two Tommy John surgeries, which is really difficult. But maybe he'll be maybe he'll be okay. Um, I, I, they've got problems though because Rue his shoulder still hurts, I and mean, luckily for them, the MRI didn't show anything different um, than it had showed, I guess, a couple of years ago when he signed. Granky's had you know, a barking elbow for 
as long as he didn't the Dodgers, but they seem to be able to kind of uh, work with it with a little bit of rest and um, just different things they do for him. Uh, I mean, we'll see. I guess any t- every team is at the mercy of the elbows and the shoulders of their starting rotation, and, and they're no different. I don't think that they have secrets that other teams don't have, but they have more money <laughs> if things don't work out to replace people. You mentioned the TV situation. If I think obviously it's a you know total shame if you see a, a professional ball club as sort of a public trust that um, that the public wouldn't be able to see that. I mean, obviously it's a disaster. It's horrible, etc. There's no defense for it. Strategically, do you think that in the long term it matters? Do you think there's a generation of Dodgers fans that 20 years ago will be lost because of this this period, or ultimately will this just be? you know, a one or two, I guess a two-year uh, obnoxious headache that everybody will immediately move on from? Yeah, I mean, I, I really can't see this going into... I can't see us being it being a year from now and still being in this situation. I think it'll be uh, two seasons at the most, uh, or they'll they'll fix it once this merger goes through. Once, what I've heard, once, once Comcast buys um, Time Warner and uh, AT&T buys TV, once once... Congress approves those those mergers. The Comcast is just going to write down a loss because, as it is right now, there I, I saw a report yesterday, I think, in the Wall Street Journal that that Time Warner lost 100 million dollars last year on this on this Dodger deal. They're they're asking too much money, I guess, from Directv or Directv is just choosing to um, take a stand on this specific um, issue. On, on this, they want to die on this hill. I'm not sure, but they're going to have to do something and they're going to have to get this team back on the air. Because if they if they aren't on TV for they, it just won't happen and then it'll just be a blip and they they won't lose fans long term. Do you think there's? I mean, is there any chance that that it endangers the enormous deal that this team was essentially purchased with with that deal in mind? Because there is that precedent of Houston and right. Comcast Houston right. and how they had the same kind of distribution issues and distributor right. was losing a ton of money and then eventually declared bankruptcy and then that kind of throws the contract into question. Is there any fear on the Dodgers' part that that, that enormous nest egg could go away? I haven't sensed any fear on their part. I've sensed they're, they're frustrated and they're annoyed and they're a bit defensive because a lot of fans are mad at them, too. And, and you know, to that, I, I would say, well, when you guys did this deal, did you, did you inquire about how much they were going to ask from different cable companies to carry the channel? And did you go to those cable companies and ask if they were comfortable paying that. But, you know, to them, it's like it doesn't matter because they get the money no matter what. And it hasn't hurt attendance at all. I mean, attendance is, is up. So to them, it's, it's, it's frustrating and it's bad. It's bad for the brand. But I think that they probably just see it as, as, you know, at some point this merger is going to happen and they're going to, they're going to write it down. There's been no, I've got, I've gotten no indication that, that they're worried about this, um, this money going away. And I mean, what is the Dodgers' rationale for for not buying a player that they want? Essentially, what what is to stop them from doing that? Like we we've seen them obviously been very active on the international market. They just signed Oliveira, right. and they were right. interested in in Yoan Moncada too, right? And they bid on sure. Yoan Moncada, but they weren't the high bidders. Why right. not? What what's to stop them from bidding more than anyone else whenever they want someone? Right. I think in that specific case, they wanted to be able to, they didn't want to be hampered in the international market over the next two years as as they would have been had they gone over. 
I, so I don't think it was as, it was as much of a money thing as it was like a, oh, like, mm-hmm. do we really want to do it this way? And then, and then be shut out on anybody else who comes along. I think it was, it was just a bit, uh, scary for them to do that. I, the sense that I get is, is, you know, they came in, the, the farm system was a mess, the team was a mess, you know, thanks to Frank McCourt. And so they spent, they spent all this money in the meantime to sort of bridge the gap. You know, they went and took on all that dead money from the Red Sox because they were desperate. They were dying to get Adrian Gonzalez. They wanted him in there. He's, you know, a good first baseman. He could field, he could hit, and he was, um, you know, he, he was a Mexican American and that's, that's a huge for their fan base. And it was a good, it was a good move. Now, you know, they, they also took on, as you know, Carl Crawford's salary and Josh Beckett's salary and, you know, in that sense they were overpaid to get Gonzalez. But I think, they had to do it, and they did it. And I think as soon as the farm system fills out a bit, and they can trot guys out there like Seeger and Peterson and Orias, their, their payroll will go down from where it is now. It'll still be in the top, you know, two or three teams, but I don't think it'll be at you know 270 million in mm-hmm. two years. Yeah, uh, it'll be down by 200 million or something. We'll yeah, see. that is going to be my my next question. Like, is this the is this the peak inflation adjusted at least of of Dodgers spending? Will the Will the payroll settle into some more reasonable level once this new regime has has time to put its stamp on the roster? But I guess you've you've answered that. Essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think that they will. I think it will settle a little bit. But at the same time, these guys want to win. Like Mark Walter, Magic Johnson, Stan Kasten. I mean, they they want they really do want to win. They they care about it. They get pissed off when they lose. So. Yeah, they they don't want to you know light money on fire, but at the same time they aren't just gonna they aren't gonna do what McCourt did, which is oh well we we have a beautiful stadium with great weather and we have great fans and we're gonna we're gonna lead the National League in attendance every year and regardless of what our payroll is so let's cut it you know let's, let's be in the bot like you know the bottom half of payroll in the National League because these fans love coming to games regardless they're, they're not gonna do that mm-hmm. and I think you're right the pitching staff is is going to be hurt I mean Granky's most likely going to opt out after this year. They're probably going to have to go and get somebody on the free agent market, and so they'll have to pay dearly for that because they don't have any any internal replacements really. Um, but but no, I don't think it's going to hang around two hundred seventy million for much longer. And I I know you wrote in the book about Mattingly's close call in two thousand thirteen, and a lot of people thought that that he was going to have another close call as soon as there was yes. a GM change this offseason. Why didn't that happen? Why is Mattingly still the manager? You know, it's interesting. Last year, he seriously kept that locker room, I mean, from Civil War. There were so many personalities in that room and a lot of nastiness, a lot of infighting. Just just every day was just something new. Somebody was unhappy about something. You know, and, and the situation with the four outfielders, like literally having to, having to like devote half of this press conference to discussing why so-and-so wasn't in the lineup today. I think this job specifically in Los Angeles with all the attention, with this huge payroll, with these people like Yasiel Puig showing up late every other day. I mean, but also being amazing at baseball. So you, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to bench him all the time. I mean, I think it takes somebody who is really patient, really calm, a, a good communicator, respected, somebody who doesn't lose their mind all the time. And he, he is all those things. He's one of the more patient people I've ever met, inside or outside of baseball, which you really need to have to have this job. And I also think, you know, to his credit, even though, you know, I and I've I've criticized everybody has criticized him for some of his in game um managerial decisions and the bunting and the double switching. 
I think he's he's always been open minded and progressive and willing wanting to learn more, wanting to get better. Sorry, my dog. Wanting to get better, um, wanting to look at the new stats. So in that sense, he's sort of a dream manager for these these guys because he will take their input. He wants to know, you know, he's not going to be one of those guys that says, I'm setting the lineup the way I'm setting it. He wants to know what they think. He wants to talk over stuff. He's really progressive in that sense. So I think I think he's got great potential to be made into a fantastic manager once he sort of, you know, gained, gets more practice. He never managed anywhere before. So I just think he's got the right personality, my mm-hmm. long-winded answer. Because from- Yasiel Puig would drive anybody insane. Because <laughs> what do you do with this kid who is like amazing at baseball, so good, so exciting, so fun, and, and clearly all of his mistakes are because he loves playing. You know, he loves the game so much, tries to take a double on a routine single or throw the ball to the, to the, you know, plate from the fence. But, you know, he can't show up on time. What do you do? Do you bench him? Do you, what do you do? You know, you've got another, you've got 24 other guys you've got to look out for as well. So, it's not an easy job. He, I think he's done, with the exception of the bunching and the double switching, I think he's done a great job. Mm-hmm. And from spending a lot of time with Clayton Kershaw, do you get the sense that we have seen his best yet? Because, you know, BP did a, a whole day of Clayton Kershaw articles recently, and Jeff Long wrote one about how he's essentially been on an upward trajectory his whole career. He's just been getting better right. and better. But at some point, it seems unreasonable to expect the best pitcher in baseball to get any better. Do you have right. any any insight into his trajectory from, from here on out? Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that puts more pressure on himself than any athlete I've ever seen or been around. Um, he wills himself to be perfect. I remember after that, he had a bad start last year in Arizona. He gave up like seven runs or something. It was crazy. And he basically vowed after that game, he's like, I'm never going to hang another breaking ball again. I mean, obviously he did in the playoffs, hung that ball to Matt Adams. But he will, like, say things to himself like that, and he'll mean it. Like, he really wants to throw a hundred perfect pitches a game. And I think his catcher, Adrian Ellis, told me, I was asking him, how did he get better this year? Like, what is he doing that's different? And AJ just said, well, you know, let's see, 2013, he might have thrown, in a game with a hundred pitches, he might have thrown nine or ten pitches that a batter could do something with. And now he's really throwing only maybe three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of, it wasn't so much that his stuff changed, it's just everything was just getting that much better. I can't expect him to improve on his numbers from last year because they were stupid. We're talking like video game craziness. But hell, I mean, I could see this kid, you know, I could see him getting, if he has another bad postseason or whatever, I could see him getting so pissed off he goes and teaches himself how to throw a changeup. And then, and then comes back with like, you know, three off speed pitches that are, you know, unhittable. Um, I, he's a freak. So I would never, I just, you can't look at like normal numbers for him. I don't know. He's and he just he wants it so bad. He 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 didn't get, and he also you know obviously he's hung so hungry for that first um, world title. So he's he's like a Kobe Bryant in that way. He's going to be the first person there and the last person to leave. So we'll see. All right. So we have forced all of our previous guests in the series to conclude with a win total prediction for their team. Oh. So we will do the same okay. for you. Okay. I will say ninety six. Okay. All right. So thank you, Molly. Thanks, guys. All right. And Molly's book, The Best Team Money Can Buy, comes out on July 14th. 
you can pre-order it now. That is All-Star Game Day, if you want an easy way to remember it. And you can find her on Twitter, at Molly underscore Knight. And coming up in the second segment, Sahada will speak to Eric Stevens. Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, associate editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Eric Steven from True Blue LA. We will be previewing the 2015 Dodgers season. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a, it's my pleasure. Uh, well, Eric is not traditional media, as uh, you heard. Uh, he's from True Blue LA, which is not a paper or an ESPN website or anything like that. Eric has access uh, to the clubhouse, and he sits in the press box, and he is uh, a blogger, I guess. <laughs> and Which is, uh, you know, people like to think uh, you're stuck in your basement and uh, and not and you don't watch baseball, but obviously that's not the case. We all know that's not true. Uh, Eric, how did you get access? This is a pretty unique thing, and I know it's, it's tough. I, I, there's no bloggers in Chicago that have access, to my knowledge, and it's uh, definitely rare around the league. Yeah, it's it's definitely like a pretty unique story, but also I kind of envy people with basements because I grew up in Southern California and like <laughs> almost no homes out here have have uh, have basements. So I always kind of I watched that '70s show with a, like a, a very jealous eye because they had such a nice basement. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I started um, um, writing for True Blue LA just at the very end of 2008. So right right as 2009 started and. Um, around uh, April or May that year, I forget when, but um, Josh Rowich, um, who was the, the uh, PR head uh, for the Dodgers, he's now with the Diamondbacks, um, he uh, decided to open up, like um, I, I guess they called it the blog spot in the press box. At the time, um, the newspaper coverage was kind of dwindling. Um, you know, the Dodgers used to have, uh, I want to say, upwards of you know five or six traveling beat writers it kind of got pared down. The Riverside paper stopped um, sending people on the road. Um, I want to say the Daily News did for a while. Um, there were just, you know, it was just like a sort of a dwindling media coverage. So at least for home games, they opened up a, like a blog spot for, uh, you know, basically every blog. And it was like first come, first serve for, you know, one spot per game. And um, at the time, I was living in um, San Diego. And um, I never, I never really had, had really lived close to LA, so I would take weekend games, and I would, um, you know, sort of visit like a cousin or something up uh, near LA, so I could maybe piggyback like a Saturday and Sunday or something like that. But I, I think that year I only did like ten games. But yeah, so as the year uh, sort of uh, wore on in, in 2009, I, I did more and more games, added some more in 2010. I would, I was working in commercial real estate. I did that for 12 years. Um, during the week, and then uh, I would basically cover games on the weekends, and then uh, you know it just sort of grew over time. I, I would I, I, one, one year, I think in 2011, I used my vacation time at work to cover like a full week of baseball. So that was kind of a weird, fun week. I did like I think I did nine games in a row, um, and then you know uh, 2012 um, sort of uh, decided to jump in both feet. I got a couple freelancing gigs in addition to. Uh, some of the editing I was doing at SB Nation, so I, I kind of did the math, and uh, I was able to 
make ends meet, um, doing all the, you know, the baseball writing and editing combined. So I decided to, um, that year, uh, cover spring training for the first time. And basically what I did was I moved, uh, I moved out of one apartment that I was in and then I basically put all my stuff into storage and then just drove straight to spring training. And then when I got back, I was like, I'll just find a place when I get back. But I stayed with a cousin for a few months, um, sort of while I figured that out. But um, it wasn't in a basement. I just want to point that out. Um, it was in a, it was in an actual apartment with a room. But no, it was good. Um, so basically, yeah. So since 2012, um, I've been I've had like full season credential cover uh, the home games. Um, I've gone to some road trips. Like San Diego's always been been open and good um, about letting me uh, in there and then same with Anaheim um, and then uh, you know just basically do most of the Southern California stuff but yeah I'm, I'm there pretty much every game and this is like my this is my fourth full spring so it's been a, it's been a quite a run yeah no that's definitely a great story and it's uh, I'm sure uh, as uh, as the years go by and and you know we continue to uh, kind of establish uh, more and more uh, internet sites it's it's it'll happen more often but right now it's still kind of unique so it's i definitely wanted to hear the background on that but now we can get to the actual dodgers and 2015 you know i kind of just assume that the dodgers have no weakness uh but i was looking at the depth chart earlier today and the back of the rotation the three four or five spots though i mean there there's tons of talent there but there's plenty of injury issues with ryu and the shoulder and we know Brett Anderson and uh, Brandon McCarthy have injury histories. How uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, is it just more like, you know, you just throw your hands up in the air and, well, if they're healthy, then it could be good. But it, it's, it's pretty questionable, I, I feel. Yeah, I think um, a couple weeks ago when um, Hyunjin Ryu first had his, um, like, shoulder um, inflammation or I think it was just soreness at first. You, you never quite know what it is. Uh, at the beginning, but um, it was right after um, I think Brandon McCarthy and Brett Anderson. You know, they didn't pitch so well in in, a, in back-to-back starts. And I know it's spring training, and then things happen. You don't really pay t- that much attention to the stats. But it was like at that very point, there was, that was the Dodgers rotation was the most vulnerable it had seemed like all all year. Um, and now it's 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 very worrisome, I think, because you know, like I said, Anderson he's averaged like just over 50 innings the last four years. Um, McCarthy hit 200 innings last year. He, he has a shoulder program he thinks that works, but his injury history is so um, long and so severe that you're, there's always the worry in the back of your mind that you know he might not be able to make it through the season. Um, and then Ryu um, has dealt with shoulder stuff. This is now his third time in the last, you know, it's less than a, a calendar year. Um, so that's that's definitely worrisome. The, the thing is with Ryu, I guess there's one positive. That his MRI didn't show any like stru- any new structural, or I guess there's nothing new. There's no structural damage. It wasn't different than the original MRI when he signed with the team. So there's like a little bit of a positive, but he's still going to probably be out most of the first month of the season. And um, he's not throwing right now. I think he's going to start throwing in about a week, and they won't really know much of a timetable until he does pick up a ball. But um, yeah, it, it is troubling because now you have to start going into you know, your, your sixth and seventh guys pretty early. And the, basically for the Dodgers, it's going to be um, the one thing I, I guess the, the new front office has done is try to acquire as much depth as possible. Right now they're looking at like Joe Weiland, uh, Mike Bolsinger, um, Carlos Frias, uh, Zach Lee. Those are basically the starters in waiting. It's it's Zach Lee was there obviously last year and same with Frias, but 
Um, I guess it's hard to really um, add depth uh, that you can sort of stash in the minors that all those guys are, you know, optioned out. So um, that's, that's, I guess, one positive. You know, last year the Dodgers went out and got um, Kevin Correa and Roberto Hernandez, which, who were kind of, you know, very mediocre at best. And you, you'd like to think you can sort of use in-house guys to get a, at least that level of production. But I think they have that, and I, I think – there's a little bit of upside in Whelan, so maybe um, maybe that's where the you know the the hope comes from. But yeah, there, there's, it's definitely worrisome right now beyond Kershaw and Grinky. And you know, there's a we knew about the questions with the bullpen, uh, and now Jansen is out. It looks like for about the first month. Uh, who takes over for him at closing out games, and how do you feel overall about the bullpen? Are there guys that you have your eyes on that you know could kind of step up, uh, you know, like people always do in bullpens? Yeah, I think um, the, the first month is going to be probably um, – they haven't really named anyone yet for in terms of um, an actual closer. So I think what they'll do, at least until Jansen gets back, is do matchup-based um, you know, closing. It might be Chris Hatcher some games. It might be Joel Peralta. Um, it could be, say, Paco Rodriguez or J.P. Howell, depending on if you know lefties are due up or something. Um, but, yeah, the, the one thing um, the front office has been I, – I haven't quite seen a spring training like this – we're, we're about a week left in camp, and they still have, I forget the exact number, I think we're, I think we're at about roughly 12 guys for seven spots. So, And it's 12, like, pretty quality arms. Um, and it's a mix of veterans um, and younger guys, some with options, some some of the veterans that, you know, in, in past years, I know, like last year, the Dodgers had a ton of guaranteed contracts in the bullpen, and none of them worked out, but they were kind of, you know, forced to carry these guys. Um, the older guys they have now, all none of them have like uh, um, opt-outs until like May 1st at the earliest. So there's there's a lot of flexibility. Like there's a, there's actually quite a good possibility that there could they could start the season with like Paco Rodriguez and Yimmy Garcia, possibly even Adam Liberatore in the pen. Uh, Juan Nicasio is like a wild card. Um, he's out of options, but. Um, you know he's pitched. He's been up and down this spring. So he's also you know he has a like 2.3 million dollar salary, but it's through arbitration. So they don't necessarily have to pay all of that if they want to sort of jettison him, or they can try to sneak him through waivers because of the salary. Um, they they have a ton of options, and I, I can't say I know which way they're going to go mm-hmm. at this point. A week into the um, week before the season, I would say um, Howell um, Peralta. And Chris Hatcher are locks, and then Paco Rodriguez is like as close to a lock as you can get. And for the other three spots, it's I, it's really really wide open right now. You know, the outfield's been a question as far as uh, the log jams, and they cleared up some of it by moving Kemp. Uh, but you still have uh, Andre Ethier there. Uh, I don't know really where he fits and if he just needs to be moved. But uh, you can answer that as uh, your just your thoughts on Ethier and where he fits, and and I'm also curious, you know, who you feel more confident with. I, I, I assume everyone is pretty confident in what Yasiel Puig can do. He's near, if he's not, uh, you know, a superstar, he's just below that rung, in in my opinion. Uh, but Jock Peterson, you know, highly thought of prospect, and Carl Crawford, guy that's uh, you know been a superstar and his star is faded. It, who do you who are you more confident in there? And then just kind of tell me about uh, Andre Ethier and where he fits into this whole puzzle. Yeah, I would say um, that's a that's actually a really good question. I haven't really I haven't I've have not thought about the Jock versus Crawford um, aspect of it, but um, more confident. I mean, 
I, I will say this. I, I really like what what uh, Peterson has done this spring. Like he's he's coming to camp. They, they you know they're he's hitting a ton. They obviously they're not they're not going to focus at all on the numbers. Um, Matt, Don Manley keeps saying he's looking at his approach and how his work ethic, and he's he's basically done everything they've asked of him. They they still won't officially they haven't officially named him the starting center fielder, but that's his job. Um, he's he's basically won that job. I, I'd be shocked if if something happens that's Maybe if they don't give him the job, you know, a week from today. But um, I would, I'm pretty confident in what uh, Jock's been able to do this spring. He's a patient hitter. Um, you know, he might hit for a low average. He's going to strike out a little bit, um, but uh, he'll hit some home runs, and he's going to walk. And I think he's going to provide, you know, um, probably average to possibly above average defense and center. At the very least, he'll be the best defensive center fielder they have on the roster. I think. Uh, and it's just it, like everything kind of flows from that. They, you know, they they dealt Matt Camp, you know, basically to make room for Jock Peterson in the long term. And uh, because Yasiel Puig fits a little better in right, they feel he's he's a um, well above average uh, fielder in right, like one of the best in the league. Whereas he might be closer to average or below average in center. Um, so this kind of uh, helps the entire outfield out. Uh, I, but I'm, I am expecting like a, a pretty solid year from Peterson as a rookie. And then, you know, with Crawford, um, he, um, he and Van Slyke will, will, I think, have a nice platoon in left and, and be productive. Um, the, the question is with Ethier, um, I know, you know, they, they did give him the opportunity. He's played quite a bit in the spring um, to, you know, to, to win the everyday job. I think uh, Peterson outplayed him um, and is going to win the center field job. But they, I think they will try to move him. They have, I guess they've tried, um, uh, you know, in the past, the, some, some of the reports were that they, you know, offered to eat half of his salary. He's due $56 million over the next three years. So it's, a, it's tough to get anyone to sort of bite on that. Um, so I, I think... You know, as of now, he's going to be Ethier's going to be a um, a solid like pinch hitter off the bench. Um, you know, he's been moved around a little bit left and center and right. Um, so you can kind of plug him in late in games um, and then play him in the outfield if you have to. But as a as a pinch hitter off the bench, I think he'll he'll do just fine. It's just a matter of will he sort of accept that role. I think he will at first. Long term, it's probably not going to play. So ultimately, I do think they move him. I don't know if it's if it's this year, if it's this off season, or you know maybe they try in the first month or something. But uh, uh, I think we'll see Ethier, um, you know, on the bench at least for the first part of the season. What's the plan long term for the middle infield at both second and short? You have guys that are kind of just you know talented guys in Jimmy Rollins and Howie Kendrick. Uh, Kendrick is a free agent after the year, and Jimmy Rollins is just getting up there in age and. Uh, I'm not sure how long his contract is, but even if it's uh, more than for just this season, it's not uh, it's not as if he's a long-term solution. What what do they have planned for for those areas? I know Seager is in the pipeline, but I'm not sure how convinced they are that he's sticking it short. Uh, everything they said publicly is that uh, Seager will um, remain it short, at least in the in the short term, and I, I take that to mean like the next few years. Um, I would imagine they're going to play him at short as long as they possibly can. Um, they, I guess the they have Hector Oliveira in the pipeline. He's not yet official, um, but uh, he's someone who could, who's probably going to be at third. He could play second, I suppose. Um, they have some options. They have Kiki Hernandez, who is kind of a super utility guy and might actually make the bench 
this year as a super utility guy, but he's only 23, and his his natural position is second base, so that that could be an option for him. Um, you know, it also wouldn't surprise me to see like uh, if they they might try to re-sign Howie Kendrick. Um, um, but yeah, both Kendrick and Rollins are done after this year, and at least their their contracts are up. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that that's kind of the going to be the question for next off season. I think is um, I, I would imagine they they hope Kendrick plays his way into a like at least a qualifying offer, and then they sort of see what it might take to extend him. And then with uh, shortstop, I think they they're pretty comfortable handing over the reins to to Seager in 2016 if uh, if they, you know, had their choice. Yeah, so you mentioned Seager there. I'm curious, is Urias uh, someone that they're looking at that may impact uh, this 2015 season? I know he's young. I know that's maybe, that's almost a crazy question for his age, but I've heard he's pretty advanced and that it's not as crazy as it sounds. Yeah, it, it, I don't I don't consider it a crazy question by any means. He's a... Uh, He's exciting to watch, and you just—if you watch him just for a little bit—you can you understand where the excitement comes in. He definitely has major league stuff right now at 18, um, which which if you just think about it, and you say that out loud, it seems ridiculous to say, but it's true. Um, uh, the, his problem is going to be command, and then his big thing this year will be—they're um, going to try to extend him in games. Um, they were, you know, rightfully so, um, limiting his innings. He. he he saw, um, I believe, he faced two two batters in the last two years um, in the sixth inning of his start. So yeah, they've really limited his innings to date, um, but they're going to stretch him out this year, I think. Um, but yeah, in terms of seeing him, I think as a possibility, let's say at the end of the year, um, his innings are at a reasonable level. They're going to increase it some. He threw, I think, 87 innings last year, so he'll he'll um, get into that 120-ish range. This year, and if his innings are uh, manageable at, towards the end of August, like, um, and you still think he has something to contribute, it wouldn't surprise me to see him sort of contribute as a potential bullpen guy in, in September, and you know, with the idea of maybe he pitches his way onto our October roster. But that that's probably the best case scenario. Um, both uh, Farhan Zaidi and Don Manley have said that you know most likely he's not going to be in the majors this year, and I, I think. If I were to bet, I would say that's probably right. Um, but, you, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, if, if they do need a, a bullpen arm down the stretch um, and his innings are still within range where you can add, you know, say 15 to 20 more um, in the bullpen, it, it, you know, it wouldn't shock me to see them just throw him into the fire and see what he could do, assuming he, you know, solves some of the, the command issues this year. But, yeah, very exciting arm, and, and that would be kind of an amazing story. Uh, he'll be 19 in August, so um, uh, we were kind of, you know, we're kind of hoping he gets up before he turns 19. But even then, that's a that's a pretty amazing story. You mentioned Mattingly, and you know, there's there's been questions about him. And the second Friedman was brought brought on to uh, be president of baseball operations, we we started questioning if he was going to make a change. Obviously, he didn't. Joe Madden became available. You know, Friedman stuck with Mattingly. Uh, is this is this a kind of a wait and see year for Mattingly? Is where we just kind of uh, figure out if if uh, what's going on past 2015, or is Friedman committed to him? Has there been any signals that he may make a move, or is this his guy for the for the long term? Yeah, that's really the question. I think uh, this year, um, 
you know, they, they've uh, had really good teams the last two years and they've fallen short. Um, they went to the NLCS two years ago um, and they, they lost in the NLDS this last year. Um, I, I sort of share that same thought that, you know, the new guy might want to bring in his own, his own person. Um, but, uh, you know, if the Dodgers, let's say they get to the NLCS again and maybe fall short, I, I, barring like, a, you know, some sort of a, a managerial collapse or like some, you know, questionable calls or something, that's probably enough to keep Mattingly around. Um, yeah, so Mattingly's contract runs through, uh, I believe, 2016. So he's got, he's got two years left. Um, at the end of the 2013 season, um, he, he didn't want to be a lame duck manager for 2014, so that's when he negotiated this extension. I doubt Mattingly's going to want to have that uh, lame duck status again. So basically this next offseason is where we're going to hit sort of the, um, you know, Mattingly's status update, I guess. So that, um, he's either going to want a long-term extension or, um, you know, they're going to have to probably make a decision, and that's my, that might be when they, you see a managerial change especially if they don't win. I don't think he has to win at all to sort of stick around, but, you know, and it's hard to even say there's a minimum, but if there is, it's probably getting to, like, the NLCS again. But, you know, if they win, like, 95 games and generally um, the clubhouse is good, which it has been the last two years, um, at least um, with given the, the things that Mattingly has to manage, that's generally one of his strengths. Uh, I don't think they're going to rock the boat necessarily, um, you know, unless some, he makes some, you know, notable gaps or something in the postseason that's just you know that's like not forgivable or something i i don't know but like you said it's always hard to to know exactly what the new guy you know the new regime wants and uh, one of the hardest things to do is replace a manager especially when you're sort of uh getting everything started on your end um so maybe they do uh have a long-term replacement in mind but uh it was harder to install in the first season rather than the second. So I guess I would say we'll find out by next season whether Mattingly is going to be here long-term or not. Uh, before I let you go, Eric, uh, I'm asking everyone this. Uh, you're, you're going to be covering this team uh, quite a bit, and you're going to be all over them. And I'm just curious, what, what intrigues you the most? Not uh, what's the key to the season or who's the most important player. It's uh, what are you most looking forward to writing about this season and, and really digging into? Well, it's just kind of, uh, it's different. I mean, like you said, they, they've won two straight divisions. The Dodgers, you know, this is kind of a weird stat. They've, they've never um, made the postseason three straight years in their franchise history, and they've been around like over 130 years. Um, you know, obviously, the bulk of that is during the World Series, so it's, it's hard to make three World Series. But even during you know, division play, they haven't. They haven't made the playoffs three straight years. So, but you know, they they have a, a, a this crazy amount of turnover on the roster. I like, I really like the new front office how they built depth um, at the bottom end of the of the roster, where it seems like they have a lot of sort of uh, uh, major league ready guys. If guys go down, obviously we we talked about the pitching staff that could be where it's a little bit questionable. But we don't know how this this new group's going to operate, and I think that's what I'm most looking forward to is how how they manage like in season, how the interplay is with Don Mattingly. Are they going to be involved with, say, um, more involved with lineups, more involved with, um, um, you know, defensive shifts, things like that. Mattingly has openly said that he embraces, you know, whatever information they give him and he's willing to, to learn and things like that. So that relationship is going to be interesting. Um, that That's, I think, what I'm looking forward to most and just see how the, like the new guys um, uh, everyone they brought in, it seems like everyone's new up the middle. You have 
Peterson at center, uh, Rollins at short, Kendrick at second, Grandal at catcher. Those are all the like the new guys this year, and I think how, how those four uh, guys perform is really going to tell you a long way about how how the season is going to go. So I think that's that's where my focus will be. But uh, it's going to be it's, it's like intriguing one way or the other um, because they they could win again, and but it's just going to be in a different way, or it could be a lot of the same, but just with different characters. So I, I'm I'm sort of intrigued to see how that exactly plays out. Uh, Eric, why don't you let the listeners know where they can find you on Twitter or any other social media you may be on, and uh, where they can read your work. Oh, sure. Yeah. So uh, the website is truebluela.com. And then I'm on Twitter at either uh, truebluela or Eric Steven. And Steven is with a PH. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. This is the last preview. So uh, that's uh, I'm done uh, co-hosting or whatever I am doing with the Effectively Wild podcast. Be sure to check out, uh, uh, we're starting Locals at BP. I'm going to be running up the Cubs site, so please check that out. There's a uh, Boston Red Sox site, and there's a Yankees site. So all you listeners, if you're a fan of those teams or just a fan of our writing, uh, please check out those sites. We're all putting together really fun teams, guys that are really into baseball, really into writing, and really into these specific teams, and I think uh, we're going to do some great stuff. Uh, I also, my son's sitting here, so I'm going to let him make his podcast debut. Sawyer. Sawyer, can you say hi? Can you say hi? Oh, no, he doesn't want to say hi. He's just asking me what, what's, what this thing is that I'm sticking in his face. So uh, he, he had a chance to make his podcast de- debut, but he chose not to. Eric, thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Sahadev Sharma. Uh, take care, Eric. Bye. Thanks. All right, that is it for the Dodgers preview and for all of our previews. We hope that you have enjoyed them and feel better prepared for the regular season than you did when we started this. I think I do. And I want to thank Sahadev for doing a great job with the second segment interviews. It is not easy to arrange and coordinate guests when many of those guests are at spring training and staying in hotels and on cell phones. And he did a great job with that. So thank you, Sahadev, for helping us out with this series. And we are now going back to our regularly scheduled programming, which, as some of you who joined us during the series might not know, continues every weekday throughout the year, starting tomorrow with the regular Wednesday email show. So you can email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. And, of course, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And you can support our sponsor, The Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to The Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We will be back tomorrow.